Chapter 11, August 1987 In the early days of the NUM, Ramaphosa sought to avoid a major strike that might destroy the Union. The leadership instead focused on building membership and organisational strength. Within two years of the Union's creation, this strategy was already bearing fruit. At the same time, Anglo-American's project of industrial relations modernisation was turning into a nightmare. Not only was there no end in sight to escalating conflict on the mines, but NUM was also becoming a channel for wider political protest. Workers, initially awed by their new ability to exercise some kind of control over their living and working conditions, began to raise their sights. In 1984, their potential power began to emerge. The union demanded wage increases of between 30 and 60% for different categories of workers for that year. After a show of negotiation, the chamber simply imposed its far lower offer on the 1st of July, sparking an outburst of uncoordinated strikes. Lum carefully exhausted all conciliation avenues and religiously adhered to Labour Relations Act's guidelines in balloting, so that the 75,000-strong strike, which began on the 16th of September, was legal. The limited reach of the new labour relations system was indicated by the violent spillover conflicts that did not involve the Union, conflicts that left 16 people dead. In consequence, the Chamber of Mines was forced to make tactical concessions and the official strike ended two days later. As Allen emphasises, in the space of two years the NUM had come to symbolise opposition to white management. Even while it adhered carefully to the letter of the law, the Union discovered that strikes have great symbolic and emotional power. When we had our first strike, Ramaphosa observes, that was when we thought we were now a real Union. In 1985, there were numerous fractious and uncoordinated disputes and mass dismissals on many mines. In a new form of political protest, two limpet mines exploded at Anglo Val's offices in Main Street, creating an uproar among white citizens and increasing political pressure on the mining houses to regularise relations with workers. Yet the union now had muscles to flex. Established as a symbol of opposition, NUM attracted further worker interest and its growth continued at a dizzying pace. In the same year, the union was able to prepare to take out on strike some 200,000 members in 18 gold and 11 coal mines. When the chamber imposed its final offer on the 1st of July and the union sought to ballot its members on strike action, Anglo-American JCI and RAND mines broke ranks and made concessions. These mining houses were partly motivated by tactical considerations seeking to undercut pressure for strike action, but their decision underlined the questionable solidarity of the Chamber's members. One of Ramaphosa's strategies in the early 1980s was to peel Anglo away from its fellow employers, in effect persuading the giant to trade higher wages and better conditions for industrial peace. In 1986, there were more than a hundred wildcat strikes in the industry. After the Kinross disaster, in which 177 miners were killed in a preventable accident, a one-day NUM protest in September brought out a quarter of a million mine workers. 
The end of the year was marked by a wave of conflict within the mines, much of it faction fighting, resulting from the union organizers' challenge to existing systems of Induna and tribal authority. More than a hundred mine workers were killed. The union took out an advertisement in the Liberal Weekly Mail on the 9th of January 1987. Let it be known once and for all that the source of conflict is rooted in the institutions of oppression and exploitation which exist in the mining industry. The hostile system, migrant labor and the Induna system were pioneered at the turn of the century by the mine owners to ensure maximum exploitation and control over all aspects of the mine workers' lives. It is from this brutal and draconian system that Anglo-American Corporation has benefited. Over time, these structures have been refined but kept intact. Anglo-American Corporation has identified and acknowledged some of the issues which have caused the tensions. But what has it done? Anglo-American Corporation wants industrial relations to be sound and orderly, yet it is not prepared to remove the archaic structures which are the source of conflict. Earlier in 1986, Ramaphosa had an opportunity to confront Harry Oppenheimer directly about mine conditions. At a celebration of the first anniversary of the Weekly Mail, Ramaphosa and Oppenheimer were both asked to speak. Ramaphosa was invited as the darling of the media. Oppenheimer had made a 5,000 rand donation to the paper. Ramaphosa went on the attack. The mining industry, he argued, provided the furnace in which race discrimination was baked. Today it relies absolutely on the exploitative migrant labor system and on police oppression to operate. It pays black workers the lowest wages of any major mining company in the world, with the exception of India. Oppenheimer complained that Ramaphosa was politicizing what should be a celebration. I differ a little bit from Cyril Ramaphosa in thinking that this ought to be fun. I think it should be rather a cheerful occasion. The fact that Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa is here to talk to us as he did talk tonight, a most touching and moving speech, made all the more touching by the neglect of the facts, the fact that we were both here to talk together is something which gives me very great pleasure. In reply, Ramaphosa characterized the differences between the two men in this way. While Oppenheimer loves diamonds, I love diamond diggers. Meanwhile, a wave of popular discontent was sweeping across the country. Mine workers were also parents, consumers, and political activists, and they inexorably brought the deepening political conflict into the mine compounds. As political unrest intensified, government responded with violence and detentions and finally imposed a nationwide state of emergency in 1986. The leadership of the United Democratic Front, the UDF, the body that coordinated domestic opposition to apartheid, was decimated by detentions and harassment. Trade unions like NUM, with their more robust organization, became increasingly central to political struggle. While union leaders differed over the best tactical deployment of union power, most black unions were now vehicles for anti-regime as well as labor relations protests. During 1986, an unprecedented 1.3 million days were lost to strike action. 
Most of Norm's officials were sure that there would be a major confrontation on the mines in 1987. Regional organisers believed that mine workers' discontent made a massive strike simply inevitable. James Motlatsi remembers that mine workers were so profoundly angry that headline wage increases were almost irrelevant. They could have been offered 30%. They could have been offered 50%. It would have made no difference. If somehow the strike had been put off for a year, the expectations would have been higher in 1988. Powerful forces were also propelling Anglo-American towards a showdown. These pressures induced subterranean shifts in the complex internal power struggle of the Anglo Empire. Within the company that had embraced modernized labor relations most wholeheartedly, many operational executives had come to regret the decision bitterly. Anglo had the best labor practices and had willingly signed access and recognition agreements. Yet it was Anglo that was reaping the bitterest harvest in terms of strike action. Its initial openness to union organization resulted in 80% of striking mine workers being Anglo employees. In the view of mining house conservatives, communists and professional agitators instigated the battles on the mine compounds. Within Anglo, reactions tended to be more pragmatic, but executives nonetheless saw the union as a monster of the company's own creation. Godsell's failure to deliver a tame labor union was just one more disappointment from modern labor relations. Discontent on Main Street about labor modernization was echoed elsewhere. To the mine managers, it was music to their ears. Norm's inroads into the Induna system and the union's drive to take control of the hostels left mine managers fearing a loss of control of their mines. They were itching to re-establish control and to reverse organizational innovations introduced by NUM. In the meantime, the position of Anglo's do-gooders and modernizers was weakening fast. At the start of the decade, the gold price had soared from $234 per ounce to $850, allowing Anglo to reap handsome profits, accommodate real wage increases, and still invest in industrial relations modernization. Yet the promised benign consequences of unionization had not materialized, and the hard economic times were back with a vengeance. Deteriorating business conditions transferred power back from labor relations empires to tough-minded finance executives. The heart of the problem was that the mining houses were running out of mineable gold. Declining ore grades meant digging out more rock to extract less metal in ever deeper and more technically demanding mines. A phenomenal 550,000 mine workers were now employed. Moreover, demand for costly skilled workers such as drillers and winch drivers was growing, while the need for lower paid lashes and hand trammers was falling. Furthermore, although the gold price was notoriously unpredictable, it was widely expected to fall sharply in the coming years. Norm emerged just as these economic pressures on an industry in historical decline, was starting to bite. Harry Oppenheimer, who had nurtured Godsell's project, was no longer on hand to protect his modernization brainchild. Since 1983, a more orthodox management committee held sway at Angler. The new chairman was Gavin Reilly, the first non-family chair as successor to Ernest and Harry Oppenheimer, 
who had successively run the company from 1917 to 1983. Relly was almost family, and Anglo Lifer selected for the fast track and appointed as Harry Oppenheimer's PA as early as 1949. Relly was first and foremost a professional businessman who would adopt the paternalism and social interventionism of Oppenheimer only if it made business sense. He was certainly a political animal. Relly saw the need for Anglo to investigate the character of the exile ANC leadership organizing the famous businessmen's trip to Lusaka in late 1985. He took with him Anglo-political strategist Zach De Beer, business plane speaker Tony Bloom, editors Harold Parkendorf of Die Vaderland and Tertius Mayberg of the Sunday Times, and the head of the South Africa Foundation. Anton Rupert characteristically withdrew under pressure from P.W. Boerter, pressure to which Harry Oppenheimer also capitulated, resulting in the old man telling Relly not to go. Relly rejected the suggestion and insisted the trip must go ahead regardless of the hostility of the government of the day. Relly was building a bridge for an uncertain future. More importantly, he was determined to assess the radicalism of the ANC leadership and the threat it correspondingly posed to the survival of Anglo in a post-apartheid era. He came back smiling, convinced that the liberation movement's leaders were patriotic sheep in Marxist wolves' clothing. Relly was decisive in his relations with the ANC and he also managed Anglo's interaction with government professionally. In March 1985, he recruited Anglo's first full-time public relations executive, Michael Spicer, just in time for Spicer to report back on P.W. Boerter's Rubicon speech which dashed the hopes of reformers in South Africa and abroad. There was no reason to suppose that Relly's executive committee, whose key members were Julian Ogilvy Thompson, Hank Slack and Nicky Oppenheimer, would risk Anglo's assets to defend labour relations initiatives in the absence of a compelling business logic for doing so. Godsell's ideas were compelling in their own way, because chaotic wildcat action had proved demonstrably costly and a transition to Formalized labor relations had to be brought about at some stage. But NUM, right then in the second half of the 1980s, was a lightning rod for wider grievances and a potential obstacle to the rationalization that deteriorating economic conditions necessitated. Now was not a good time to lose control of the mines. In the very near future, many mines would have to close and low-grade ore would have to be left in the ground. In such circumstances, a showdown with NUM was not merely about one year's wage increases. NUM had to be decisively defeated in order to set advantageous future patterns of industrial relations. No doubt, there were some Anglo-executives who wanted to destroy the Union. If a decisive confrontation was coming, moreover, it was better for Anglo that it came soon. For Ramaphosa, the impending strike was also much more than an industrial relations dispute. He was one of many activists who had overestimated the vulnerability of the regime. At the Union's fifth annual congress in February 1987, Cyril told the assembled delegates that apartheid had been decisively weakened by mass protest and that a dramatic transformation was on the cards. 
The keynote speaker was Winnie Mandela, symbol of ANC struggle. The slogan chosen for 1987 was The Year Mine Workers Take Control, a deliberate echo of the ANC's Year of Advance to People's Power. Delegates adopted the Freedom Charter and endorsed the following motion. The NUM and organized working class in general must play their historic role in the struggle for a non-racial and democratic South Africa. All of this unambiguously committed the Union to the wider liberation struggle. On the 20th of March, NUM demanded a living wage for all mine workers, the first step towards which would be a 30% increase for 1987-88. The Union also demanded the abolition of the migrant labour system, improved hostel accommodation and democratic hostels. Unreasonably, Ramaphosa demanded a response by the 30th of March, clearly aching for a fight. The Union began to make preparations for a major confrontation. NUM had moved in 1986 from the dingy Lecton House to the relative luxury of Kosatu House in Jeppy Street, where it was able to spread out over three floors. In early 1987, the building began to attract security police attention. Adrian Flock, the Minister of Law and Order, determined that Kosatu House was fostering a revolutionary climate, giving sanctuary to wanted political activists and hosting undesirable activities such as proscribed meetings. Flock contacted Johannes van der Merwe, head of the security branch, to discuss how these activities could be curtailed. Van der Merwe brought in local special branch officer Nicholas Erasmus and Willem Friedrich Schoen, the head of Unit C1, Flakplas, the operational arm of the police service responsible for covert operations against the ANC and its allies. He briefed them on the sinister character of the building, cautioned them to avoid deaths and serious injuries, but otherwise gave them a free hand to neutralize the problem. The security branch operational team carried out preliminary surveillance operations from a nearby rooftop and used a hidden camera in a briefcase to determine the internal layout of corridors and rooms. The head of the operational team, Eugene de Kock, purchased torches, stabbing knives, rope and bolt cutters and sourced 50 kilograms of explosives of Russian origin, such as hypothetical communist terrorists might be storing in Kosatu House. He then assembled a team of 16 Flakplas operatives and equipped them with firearms, including silenced AK-47 rifles. The men removed all identifying insignia and badges before preparing drugged cans of beer designed to render guards unconscious. In an operation that took just four minutes, they approached and entered the building through basement windows after cutting through security bars. Explosive specialists placed charges where they would create the greatest structural damage. The flock blast agents then retreated unobserved to a highway to the east of the city centre. A few minutes later they heard the expected pair of powerful explosions. The twin blasts had devastating effects. The first three floors of the building were occupied by NUM, and these bore the brunt of the explosion. When NUM workers came to work the following morning, they found that their third-floor desks were in the basement. 
The legal department and the health and safety department on the first floor was more or less completely obliterated. Years of painstakingly collected data and records were destroyed. The city council rapidly cordoned off the building after declaring it unsound and in this way prevented union staff from retrieving sensitive records. Lum hired rooms in Victoria Hotel and then borrowed office space from the South African Council of Churches. Soon they relocated to Num's own regional office at Dara House in Wanderers Street. As the wage negotiations progressed, Num was crammed into a single floor of the old office building, where tiny working spaces were divided by flimsy partitions. Although the bomb was detrimental to the longer-term development of the union's databases and infrastructure, the inadvertent introduction of a then unfashionable open-plan office in which everyone could see everyone else simply by looking over their partitions, made this an exceptionally efficient space during the crisis to come. The turmoil of the national office also bolstered the union's program of decentralization, and immensely talented tiers of area and regional organizers made a virtue out of necessity. Most of these officials had worked on the mines, and they had first-hand experience of the grinding war between union and management at the level of the compounds and mine shafts. They were able to develop strike plans tailored to the conditions in which they had to work. While the union recovered from the bombing, the mining houses were making their own preparation for the strike to come. Johann Liebenberg, Chamber of Mines Head of Industrial Relations, cautions today against seeing too much rational calculation in the strike. We were all acting on gut feel, and we had only been at this process with Cyril and black mine workers for five or six years. It was still a new process for us all. Despite this disclaimer, there were many indications that the mining houses had laid their plans carefully that year. The key figure in these preparations was the head of Anglo-American's gold and uranium division, Peter Gush. He was a Rhodes Scholar of St. Edmund Hall, Oxford, and an intensely combative rugby player who developed a natural sympathy for the difficult tasks confronting mine managers. After a strong early career at Anglo, he had spent seven years in the Canadian mining industry where a union-intolerant industrial relations culture prevailed. Gush was not by temperament a negotiator, rather being disposed to take a well-reasoned decision and then stick to it. As the president of the Chamber of Mines from July 1986 to June 1987, Gush prepared the ground for the strike in accordance with his personal style. His philosophical adversary, Bobby Godsell, was away in Boston in the six months preceding the strike, engaged in an episode of personal development. Although Godsell returned just in time to act as Anglo's key strike spokesman, he was to play no role in the negotiations that year. In the lengthy pre-negotiations in the chamber, Gush secured a mandate among the mining houses for an uncompromising stance on wages. There would be no divisions this year. Johann Liebenberg later recalled adamantly that the union got nothing on wages. Vic Allen observes that mine owners also had ample time to take their usual precautions of building up stockpiles of ore or coal, preparing their security forces for conflict, recruiting vigilantes, and ensuring that there were adequate supplies of strike breakers. 
Gold stockpiling on the mines began many months in advance. Even a short strike would cause longer-term disruption to production, and some precautionary stockpiling was essential. This year, however, there would be no interruptions of supply during the strike or its aftermath, and the unprecedented sizes of stockpiles allowed the mining houses to negotiate from a position of strength. Overall gold production in the year of the Great Strike would fall only 10 tonnes short of its prior target of 630 tonnes. Meanwhile, the Reserve Bank doubled the size of its strategic reserve of gold, which reached 6.2 billion fine ounces by November 1987. Anglo also had plenty of time to consider a strategy of dismissals. Mass dismissals in 1987 are sometimes viewed as an unprecedented reaction by a highly pressurized management to a desperate situation underground. At the time, whole shafts were in danger of deteriorating to such an extent that production would be permanently lost. In the words of the Gold Division's Industrial Relations head Nigel Unwin, certainly the stope collapsing was the primary reason and defense for commencing with mass dismissals. But Anglo had used dismissals before, and as recently as 1985 had found that they could be a costly weapon. During the torrid 1985 conflicts at Val Reefs, Anglo had decided to break the strike by dismissing 14,400 workers and forcefully evicting them from the mine premises. According to Allen, this decision had devastating consequences for number 8 shaft, probably Anglo's single most productive shaft, which never recovered to its pre-dismissal production trajectory. The lesson that Anglo learned was not that mass dismissals must never be used. Indeed, Johann Liebenberg announced on the first day of the strike in a comment reported in the American press that if the strike lasted longer than a few days, the mining houses might resort to a policy of mass dismissals. Minister of Manpower Piti Duplessis also saw a role for dismissals, telling the BBC on the 11th of August that they would not disrupt production for long because the mines will probably take on other workers. They have a surplus of workers in the mining industry. Even Bobby Gotzel, a few days after his return from the US, reiterated that a business had to defend its financial interests and could not permit workers to continue striking until it was sequestrated. But no employer wanted mass dismissals of workers in whom a lot of money had been invested. Today, Godsell says he was fearful of the visceral conflict that he discovered on his return to Johannesburg. His reported comments about dismissals had nothing to do with a premeditated plan to attack or destroy the Union. Rather, they were intended as a public warning to NUM not to exclude the possibility that such dismissals really could occur. He wanted to understand that this time, Anglo would not crumble. When formal negotiations got underway on the 15th of May, the atmosphere was poisonous. NUM demanded 40 to 55% wage increases, concessions around holiday leave, danger pay and death benefits, and, mischievously, that the 16th of June be declared a paid holiday. The Chamber responded with a 12.5% offer. The gulf was wide, and the likelihood of conflict hardened. NUM declared a dispute under the Labour Relations Act, 
which in principle should have triggered a complex conciliation process. The Chamber, however, decided in the normal way to impose its offer on the 1st of July. This act seemed to signal that the mining houses believed the balance of power in the industry had been unaffected by the rise of the NUM. The Chamber then taunted NUM officials for misrepresenting members' opinions and for exaggerating membership figures. Allen believes that this policy of trying to sideline the union by repeatedly understating its influence annoyed Ramaphosa, who began to see an all-out national strike as the only way of proving that the Chamber of Mines was wrong. A ballot of 210,000 mine workers soon showed that more than 95% of those eligible to vote supported a strike. The union's executive discussed the results of the ballot on the 2nd of August and decided to call a strike beginning the following Sunday, 9th of August. On the 3rd of August, Ramaphosa announced the union's decision to the press. We have been in dispute with the Chamber of Mines for some time now. After reaching deadlock at the Conciliation Board, we proposed to the Chamber in the usual reasonable way that the dispute should be referred to mediation and arbitration. The Chamber of Mines rejected both proposals. We then proceeded with the strike ballot, which received overwhelming support from our members. The strike ballot was a clear proof that our members are not satisfied. Our National Executive Committee met yesterday and decided that strike action should proceed this coming Sunday, that the night shift should not proceed underground and the day shift the following day until we have won our demands. No one knew how long the strike would last. Experience pointed to a short episode of four or five days at most, but wise heads were concerned that a protracted war of attrition was quite conceivable. The Chamber's Johann Liebenberg publicly predicted a dispute of two to five days, while at the same time threatening mass dismissals if the strike lasted longer. Michael Spicer, already a confidant of Chairman Gavin Reilly, later observed that Cyril's strategic agenda in 1987 was much bigger than just securing a few wage concessions. It would have been naive to suppose that this strike would be a quick event. Room organisers and officials were equally uncertain. It was a new kind of strike. We were more organised than ever before. But we thought it would last 21 days. Marcel Golding agrees that there was no certainty about the length of the strike. We knew that there was substantial support. There was no clear sense of the time it would last and there was a generally shared view that it would be short. But this was not planned for carefully. James Montlatzi, on the other hand, was struck by the fury among ordinary mine workers. I knew there would be a strike. I knew it would be hard to get people back to work. And I knew there would be mass dismissals. Once the stoppage had begun, he recalls, the anger of the miners was of such great intensity that he would not have dared to suggest they return to work. Even before the strike began, he was preoccupied with the repercussions of mass dismissals. It is on record that at the biggest mass meeting in the run-up to the strike in the Secunda region, he told mine workers to prepare for a long stay away. The action commenced on the evening of the 9th of August. The next day, remembers Johann Liebenberg, there were 300,000 workers on strike. Ramaphosa felt elated. This was 
the pinnacle, really, because you had 340,000 people out on strike on a strike that started on the day that was decided by two people, myself and James Motlatsi. Over 70% of all black coal and gold miners had come out. A battle for mine workers' hearts and minds now commenced with the hostels as the battlefield. Most mine workers stayed in their hostels throughout the dispute. For 24 hours a day, Alan observes, the mine workers were exposed to the competitive moral and physical pressures from the local strike leaders on the one hand and the managers and security forces on the other. Within the limits imposed by the national state of emergency and management repression, union officials tried out new tactics to maintain the strike. Elected strike committees had been put in place immediately before the stoppage began. In Velcom, miners elected by branches wore green T-shirts identifying them as committee members. They took control of hostels and kitchens and ensured that catering and cleaning services continued. They also closed bars and ensured that strikers could not access smuggled liquor. Strike committee chairs gave regular feedback to miners on strike developments in mass meetings held two or three times every day. In most Vitvatesrand mines, by contrast, management closed canteens and withdrew food from these striking mine workers in an attempt to starve them into submission. The union had to arrange for emergency rations to be smuggled into the hostels. Meanwhile, logistical and communications problems escalated when heavily armed mine security sealed compound perimeters. The union's temporary office in Johannesburg, a hive of round-the-clock activity, tried to coordinate and support local strike committees. Communication was exceptionally difficult, however, with fax and teletext machines working constantly. Even in the heat of battle, the legal department warehoused huge volumes of documentation of violence intimidation and unfair dismissals. This paper trail was to prove decisive the following year in establishing the brutality of mine security and advancing grounds for the rehiring of dismissed workers. But more often than not, organisers had to come physically to the union offices to pass on information about developments on particular mines and also to get updates from the national leadership about changes in strategy and developments in the negotiations. While the strike unfolded in various ways, no two minds were alike, violence, at least, was everywhere. The worst of the violence was inflicted by Norm's own members. Strikers assaulted non-strikers and strike-breakers with unprecedented viciousness. In some compounds, armed workers set up kangaroo courts and strikers received death sentences for betraying their comrades. Mine security was also responsible for a familiar pattern of provocation and assault. Managers feared the strike might drag on and tried hard to break it quickly. Their determination to curtail the strike by force was evident in the manner in which the intensive and large-scale confrontations conducted by the security forces and the police were synchronized between Wednesday and Saturday in the first week. On the first day, the police made 177 arrests of shaft stewards and strike committee members in what Ramaphosa described as a pattern of repression that is beginning to evolve to try to destroy our strike. 
It was very well calculated by the Chamber of Mines as well as the government to crush the strike by arresting the leaders and leaving the strikers leaderless. To this day, mining house executives are reluctant to talk about the violence of mine and state security police in 1987. After mine unrest in the early 1970s, a confidential interdepartmental committee of inquiry into riots on the mines had identified communist agitators, migrant labor, and hostile accommodation as the key sources of tension. It recommended vastly scaled-up security, including a dedicated security unit at every mine, equipped with whips, shotguns, attack dogs, tear gas, and armored cars. The report also indicated that the security police should back up mine security. Mine managers embraced the document wholeheartedly. By 1987, some of the larger mines had armoured cars and surveillance helicopters and security police supplemented mine security intelligence by using supposedly prohibited paid informers. Industrial unrest policing was the responsibility of the deputy police minister, whose oversight of the national security management system entailed coordinating responses to major episodes of strike action and ensuring that intelligence, police and private agencies work together to best effect. The Deputy Minister between 1986 and 1988, in such a politically sensitive post, was inevitably an Afrikaner political insider who could be trusted by P.W. Boerter. This hardline minister was one of the few with direct access to the President at all times. His name was Rolf Mayer. Mayer liaised continuously with representatives of the mining houses in the chamber, most frequently with Bobby Godsell and Johann Liebenberg. Godsell continues to defend aggressive policing in more or less the same terms he used at the time. Our security forces have only one role to play in a strike situation, and that is to simply maintain order and prevent violence. He admits that boundaries were sometimes overstepped, for example, in the use of live ammunition against what were civilian protesters and in the piping of tear gas into the worker hostels, which was undertaken by mine managers without the knowledge of Main Street. In such ways, he concedes, mine security did sometimes use inappropriate levels of violence. At the same time, Godsell counters that it is hard to calibrate the level and form of violence to levels of threat. Given the degree of violence perpetrated by striking miners on non-strikers and strike breakers, he claims, intriguingly, Anglo's heavy-handed policing should be understood as an attempt by the company to protect the civil rights of non-strikers. It was over security and the devastating use of violence that the greatest falling out was to occur between Anglo and NUM. By the end of the first week, there were no signs of an early end to the strike. Indeed, both sides were digging in, and there was a sense that the strike was getting out of hand. Angler called for a meeting with Norm leadership at the Carlton Hotel in downtown Johannesburg to sound out possibilities for resolving the dispute, but also to discuss escalating violence. From the point of view of the NUM, there were two big issues on the table. The first was violence, who was responsible, and... How could it be curtailed? The second was the route to a settlement. Would Anglo make the kind of concessions that might allow the union to sell an offer to its increasingly entrenched strikers? 
The meeting was hastily arranged, and only a small venue was available in the hotel. Ramaphosa arrived first with his team, James Motlatsi, Marcel Golding, and Kuben Pillay. Cyril carried a bag full of shotgun cartridges and rubber bullets that had been brought to the NUM headquarters by organizers. The NUM team placed these instruments of violence on the tables. When Anglo's team arrived, it included Peter Gush, Bobby Godsell, Nigel Unwin, and Don Nube. There was bad blood between Gush and Ramaphosa, the senior negotiators on both sides. They had each come to blame the other for the violent behavior of their subordinates. In addition, Ramaphosa's pragmatic and restless style of accommodation was anathema to the straightforward boss of the gold division. The fireworks came when Ramaphosa spoke to Godsell about police violence on the mines. Ramaphosa had already become increasingly frustrated with his Anglo interlocutors. He would be on the phone many times every day with them, and the conversations were largely cordial, if angry. On occasion, however, Cyril would simply shout, Fuck you! and slam the phone down. He would then refuse to talk for days. In personal meetings, on the other hand, Cyril tended to be calm and collected, making his behavior on this day all the more extraordinary. He greeted the Anglo team with a blast of invective. With a sweeping arm, he brushed the rubber bullets and cartridges from the tables in front of him onto the floor. He shouted words at Bobby Godsell, the man who he thought had made promises and then failed to keep them. His words are remembered slightly differently by different participants. You are no longer Bobby Godsell. From now on you are Bass Godsell, records Nigel Unwin. For Godsell himself, it was the cartridges that were the focus of Ramaphosa's rage. Is this your concept of minimum force, Bass Godsell? The NUM delegation walked out of the talks once it became clear that Angler had no concessions to make. Things were not going entirely against the mining houses. They were not suffering heavy financial losses because of their careful planning, and they seemed to be weathering adverse international media coverage of mine security violence. However, the long-term deterioration of the mine stopes was becoming a pressing concern. The collapsing of unworked stopes was a problem about which almost everyone in the industry was fully aware. Deep-level mines are like organisms whose survival depends upon constant activity. Without daily maintenance of support systems, the incredible underground pressures relentlessly crush flat mine supports and rock bursts collapse tunnel roofs and walls. It was inconceivable that Anglo would simply allow its assets to be permanently destroyed in this way. The company now had to decide how to bring the strike to a rapid end. In reality, Anglo still held most of the cards. At one end of its spectrum of options, it could make substantial concessions, particularly on headline wages, that would allow NUM's leaders to sell a return to work to the membership. At the other end of the spectrum, it could use the often threatened policy of mass dismissals to force the union to concede. Peter Gush bore the heaviest responsibility for deciding how the company should proceed. He stuck firmly to his position that there should be no concessions around wages, and he was supported in this decision by the chamber. NUM's leadership was stranded. There was no way in which a deal without wage concessions could be sold to its members. 
In public, Bobby Godsell defended the Chamber's hard-line position. But within Anglo, he argued for concessions to be made that would allow a resolution of the strike. The issue would have been deliberated by the inner cabinet at Oppenheimer and Son, as well as more formally in Anglo's boardroom. On one account, Gavin Reilly told the board that he was concerned about the domestic and international political implications of mass dismissals. In response, Gush told Reilly to join a political party if he wanted to play politics. He also brushed aside others arguing for concessions with a quip that they knew nothing about the reality of mining. From the perspective of the board, Gush had a compelling point. Amelioration and compromise might solve the immediate crisis at the rock face, but would not solve the developing crisis of authority on the compounds. There was desperation, a sense of rage, a sense of terror enveloping Main Street. Violence and mayhem was growing, 17 hostels were entirely closed to outsiders, and managers were worried about industrial sabotage. As Godsell sees it today, you can't run the mines if you don't run the hostels. Gush's strategy offered more than the solution to a crisis of collapsing stopes. It offered an opportunity to cut down the authority of Norm's leadership by following dismissals with reprisals against union organizers. Induna power could be reasserted and the traditional authority of the mine managers rebuilt. Some hardliners doubtless hoped that the union could be completely crushed. If Num resisted mass dismissals and somehow sustained the strike, one momentous series of dismissals and reprisals could destroy the union for good. At the same time, the dismissal strategy was also compelling to moderates like the Gold Division's head of industrial relations, Nigel Unwin, who remains convinced the strike probably wasn't capable of amicable resolution. I genuinely believe that dismissal by ourselves and the knowledge that we would have to take most workers back almost immediately was the only way. From a battle of attrition on the mine compounds, the strike suddenly turned into a relentless program of mass dismissals. In the strike's second week, Godsell announced the dismissal of some 17,000 workers would begin the following Monday. Meanwhile, at Anglo-American's annual general meeting, which happened to fall in the middle of the week, a statement was issued that confined concessions to holiday bonuses, death benefits, and the nature of a planned provident fund. Despite the advance warnings about mass dismissals in British and American news media, Godsell, who was responsible for implementing the dismissals, averse that there was simply no strategy for dismissals. There was no plan. The Chamber's chief negotiator claims that we were never looking more than two days ahead at most. We kept thinking they would fold tomorrow, and they kept thinking we would fold tomorrow. We should not ascribe too much sophistication to the process. By contrast, the sociologist T. Dunbar Moody's interviews with mine managers suggest that a clear strategy was in place. Anglo had learned from its 1985 experiences at Kluf Mine that mass dismissals should occur only on the least profitable shafts. As Moody observes, Anglo's mass dismissals during the 1987 strike were very carefully orchestrated. They dismissed workers from the least profitable shafts first. 
Managers remembered that process was much less traumatic than the 1985 dismissals. They too had learnt their lessons. The dismissals were also targeted at those shafts in which support for the strike was strongest. Dismissals and lockouts began around the 18th of August. Within two days, around 40,000 workers on Anglo, Gencore and JCI mines were threatened with dismissal. Gotzel was possibly still fighting a rearguard battle for concessions that would make defeat more palatable to the Union. Rally made a small cash offer through the Chamber of Mines, which the NUM membership predictably rejected. By the 24th of August, more than 10,000 workers had been sacked. After the 26th of August, mass dismissals began on a large scale, and by the 27th of August, more than 30,000 had been retrenched. Godsell was formally in charge of the retrenchment process, and he worked with the union to minimize the violence and disruption it brought. However, on some occasions, when NUM organizers thought they had a verbal agreement with Godsell, they would find his commitments rescinded in telexes sent by Peter Gush. The mining houses, meanwhile, accelerated their recruitment of substitute scab labor, in particular from Lesotho, where there was a deep pool of experienced mine workers. By the third week of the strike, the mine workers were in desperate straits. Their families had spent almost a month without remittances. Six workers had been killed and more than 600 injured or arrested. When negotiations recommenced on the 25th of August, the Chamber refused to make concessions except at the margins around holiday pay and death benefits. The NUM put the offer to a ballot without recommending for or against it. The miners voted not to return. By the 27th of August, nine mine workers had been killed, 500 injured and approximately 400 arrested. More than 50,000 had been dismissed. Very late that night, in a phone call from Newsweek correspondent Robert Rees, Ramaphosa learnt that Anglo was now ready, if necessary, to dismiss virtually its entire striking workforce. A shaken Ramaphosa woke James Motlatsi and the two men considered the options available to them. Cyril then called Khalif van der Kolf, a straight talker whom Ramaphosa and Motlatsi knew perhaps better than any other Anglo executive. In negotiations, they had found that they could read him like a book. Van der Kolf confirmed to Cyril that there was indeed now a plan to continue dismissals until the bitter end. Ramaphosa and Motlatsi were left with no option. The collapsing stopes would force an end to the strike one way or another in the next few days. If Anglo continued with mass dismissals, the union would lose more than four-fifths of its membership. Its remaining presence would be in mining houses where it was too small to secure recognition. The union would be destroyed, and there was no telling if it could ever be rebuilt. Cyril was not willing to sacrifice the future of the union to a dispute it could no longer win. Ramaphosa and Motlatsi then called together representatives of the regional strike committees. The delegates bitterly agreed that the only course was for the strike to end. But the mining houses did not let matters rest. When a NUM delegation met the chamber negotiators on Sunday the 30th of August to agree to their offer, it had been rescinded. 
Ramaphosa had to battle hard to secure something close to the earlier concessions on death benefits and holiday pay. Moreover, he was unable to secure any promises about reinstatement of dismissed workers. On the evening of the 30th of August, the mine workers returned to work. Anglo had curbed union power and it was able to manage a major reorganization on the gold mines over the next decade largely on its own terms. In 1987, there were more than half a million black mine workers on the gold fields. By 2000, there were just 169,000. These massive retrenchments were driven primarily by economic fundamentals, including exhaustion of mineable ores and falling gold prices. But they were also influenced by a strike which taught managers that most shafts could operate with a reduced workforce. While bowed and beaten, the union was not destroyed. As Num was later to gloss the outcome, the strike was not a defeat, it was a setback. The employers were bent on at least curbing, if not destroying, our union. But they did not achieve this objective, even though 50,000 workers were dismissed. In words that Cyril himself probably penned, the union declared that Defeating the boss's aims of destroying the NUM is clearly a resounding victory. The immediate fallout from the strike seemed nothing short of disastrous for many officials. Their depression was deepened by a devastating mine accident on the day the miners returned to work. Almost 50,000 mine workers had been dismissed and there was no enforceable commitment on the part of the mining houses to reinstate them. Dismissed workers had been upbeat and full of defiant songs when they were bussed away from their mines. Very quickly, however, their bravado was replaced by dismay and demoralization and deepened by the vindictiveness and retaliation of those who had opposed the strike. The union's legal office was swamped with faxes and teletexts about dismissed workers and engulfed by a sense of utter helplessness. It would be weeks before the union's instructing attorneys for strike litigation could begin to construct paper trails and battle for the rights of dismissed workers. While negotiating reinstatement, the union had to organize programs to keep unemployed members busy in rural areas in Lesotho and the Eastern Cape. It was the regional and local organizers of the union who bore the brunt of discontent about the outcome of the strike. They had incited and encouraged the workers to down tools, and now they had to explain the necessity for capitulation and the delay in reinstating sacked miners. Workers who had proudly sustained strike action at great personal cost left the mines with their heads held high. Now they were conscious they could never recoup lost wages. Although he soon recognized the wisdom of their decision, Franz Baleni remembers his own intense anger with Ramaphosa and Motlatsi. Every day, strike committee members endured taunts from indunas and white mine workers. Shop stewards were subjected to intensified harassment by the mine managers. Union facilities were taken away and rights to meet and organize were rescinded. Baleni was summarily dismissed after being accused of incitement the evidence for which allegation was captured on now-routine tape recordings of a union meeting. 
James Motlatsi, more than anyone, had sustained workers' confidence that they could defeat the bosses. Now, many union members saw him as a traitor. Throughout 1988, a nightmare year for him, workers would sing, James Motlatsi is a killer. Even 20 years later, he was sometimes greeted in parts of the Eastern Cape with the song, James Motlatsi, he is the one who sold us out. Peter Gush personally decided that Motlatsi must be fired, an unprecedented attack on the senior leadership of the union. Harry Oppenheimer and Gavin Reilly both attempted to intercede on Motlatsi's behalf, but Gush would not be swayed. Incensed at the time, Motlatsi bears no ill will today, and the two men were later to negotiate constructively when Gush became managing director of De Beers. Some organisers and ordinary workers, not initially understanding the union's vulnerability, suspected betrayal by their own leaders. Only later did they realise that, as the union's historian puts it, there was no collusion over the ending of the strike. It ended because Anglo-American threatened to destroy the union. A substantial minority of ANC exiles, themselves of course hardly experts on successfully taking on the power of the apartheid state, also believed the strike should have been continued to its bitter end. The idea that strikers were sold out by their leaders resurfaced several years later in smear campaigns directed at Ramaphosa when he was challenging for the country's deputy presidency. Historians like to debate the significance of political leaders in changing the course of history. Some prefer structural explanations that emphasize what was likely to happen in the long run, regardless of the capabilities, intentions and actions of particular individuals. Others focus on the ability of particular individuals, most famously figures like Lenin, Hitler or Mao, to change the trajectory of whole societies through their actions. How can we understand Ramaphosa's relationship to the Union of which he was General Secretary for so long? Did the Union emerge as a result of inexorable social forces, incidentally propelling Ramaphosa to undeserved prominence, as some of his critics claim? Or was the Union Cyril's individual creation the direct product of his restless will and pragmatic genius? The historian of black mine workers, Vic Allen, is in no doubt. He observes that though there would have been attempts during the 1980s to organize black mine workers, there would have been no num without Cyril Ramaphosa. For Allen, Ramaphosa formed num with the materials at hand, taking advantage of Anglo-Americans' enthusiasm before creating an organization that was capable of surviving a major strike defeat and its aftermath. In a sense, Cyril Ramaphosa and NUM are synonymous when discussing their impact on South African society. One could not have been achieved without the other. At the same time, the strike and its aftermath also bear testimony to the limitations of trade union power in a capitalist society. Throughout its history, the union has been heroic in its spirit and spectacular in its growth, but the character of a market economy still limits the overall capacity of a union to bring about fundamental change. Unionized mine workers enjoy higher wages, greater protection against arbitrary dismissal, and larger retirement funds to cushion their old age, 
than they would have possessed in the absence of NUM. But the logic of the industry continued to impose a migrant labor pattern and dehumanizing single-sex hostels. The burden of disease became heavier than ever as a result of HIV-AIDS and a resurgent TB epidemic. The risk of accidental death was not much lower at the end of Cyril's term of office than it was when the union was founded. Most importantly, the industry was still in terminal decline. Geology, technological constraints and price volatility are all matters that lie beyond the reach of organized labor. Indeed, the cages of capitalism and geology confined the bosses almost as much as the union organizers. On Main Street and in the diamond-shaped building at 11 Diagonal Street that later housed Angla Goldashanti, the death, disease and unremitting labor endured by mine workers made the industry an emotionally difficult one in which to be a boss. In 1985, Cyril was already sensitive to the wider constraints within which employers and workers negotiate, arguing that the mining industry is defined by an evil social and economic structure which manufactures two kinds of people, blacks and whites, and which keeps blacks and whites fighting against each other for the benefit of a few capitalists. The significance of the union, of course, went far beyond its impact on the working conditions and wages of a particular industry. Allen observes of the wider liberation struggle, I doubt whether the outcome would have been reached so quickly and that the ANC and the SACP would have been ready and capable of providing leadership when they did without the NUM's involvement. The significance of the union for Ramaphosa, moreover, was human as much as political. He would sometimes say to his NUM confidants that the best thing the NUM has ever done is to give mine workers dignity and pride. In 1982, mine workers had been ashamed of their work. According to organizers in Nanisa, they were at the bottom of the ladder. They would have a belt or a strap with a number on it. Each worker had a number they would be forced to wear. They had to take that belt off if they went into a township, otherwise they would risk being mugged or assaulted. In those days, if people knew you were a miner, you were looked down on and treated without respect. Ramaphosa was adored by NUM's members because he approached them with humility and treated them with respect. He also insisted that the dignity of my mine workers was respected by others. Even when the union was close to insolvent, Ramaphosa would never economize on their accommodation. As Franz Baleni recalls of his days as an underground worker and organizer, Cyril insisted that we would stay in the best hotels, in the same hotels as our counterparts in management. Our finances were in a mess, but Cyril always told ordinary workers like me, workers who had never even seen the inside of a hotel before, that they were staying there because they deserved it. He wanted them to have the things they had been denied in life. By the end of the Great Strike, Ramaphosa was a man recognized and respected in deep rural areas across the mining industry's entire subcontinental labor empire. NUM had taken on the might of the mining industry at the heart of the apartheid economy, and it had not been destroyed. Ramaphosa was still just 34 years old.